Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who shouted, followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Um, I have the privilege of uh, introducing uh, someone, a missionary that we've supported for the last several years, is going to be uh, preaching this morning, Justin Schell. Um, unfortunately, his wife Megan and kids Henry and Evie couldn't be here uh, with him, but uh, so glad that he could join us. Um, he's uh, in town uh, helping to teach uh, perspectives in the World Christian Movement class. Uh, elsewhere, he maybe will mention something about that, but uh, so glad to have him. Unfortunately, he's going to have to, he's going to have to kind of book it out of here um, about as soon as he's done, so he won't be able to linger and talk with people, but, uh, but if there's anything that you'd like to follow up with him, I'm sure we can uh, get contact information for email or phone or things like that, because he's always had a heart to serve. Um, he spent four years um, between France and Morocco um, doing uh, uh, missions work there. They've been in the States for the last three years. Uh, working with pioneers in the Lausanne movement. And uh, Justin, thank you for coming to uh, share with us today. Glad to have you. Thank you. Good morning. Can you hear me? All right. It is good to be back with you. Um, we're going to hand out a quiz in a moment for those who were here about a year ago when I spoke, just to see how that, we're not doing that? Okay, all right, well, let's move on. Um, it is good, I, I, I recognize some of the faces that are here, it's good to re-see you, and I see faces I don't recognize, that doesn't mean you're new, but hello. Um, as Caleb said, we... My wife and our kids, we were in Morocco most recently as missionaries. Morocco is 99% Muslim, the kingdom of Morocco. And um, we had a heart to see the gospel go to places and to peoples that have never had access to it. Never had a chance to say yes or no to it. And uh, that's still our heart. That's still our heart. And I'm going to share a little bit about um, pioneers and the Lausanne movement and the work we're doing now to get the gospel to where it's not, where it's not. So 
that'll, that'll kind of weave in as we go, but I wanted to, to share a quick story with you. This has absolutely nothing to do with the message today. Um, but today, you are bombarded with news sources, whether you get your news online or you get your news on the TV, or if you read, what, what do they call those, those things they print daily that we, we used to read? Newspapers, that's right. If you read the newspaper, you're bombarded with news. And because bad news sells, that's what you get. And I'm here to say that God is at work turning our disasters into his opportunities. There's a, 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 just last week, I was talking to a man in uh, Damascus, uh, in Syria. And uh, there was a small church gathering, and uh, the, the, the usual people were there, and all of a sudden in the back, a guest walks in. And you can probably imagine how you would be feeling, because this is how they felt as the man walked in, in a full, uh, in Morocco we'd call it a jalaba, I'm not sure what the word is there, but, but robes that say, I'm a follower of Islam, and a nice big beard to go with it. And he walks in to the church, looks around, walks to the front and sits down. And the pastor is um, a little bit nervous, to say the least. I don't know, Caleb, how would you feel? Probably, hopefully nervous, maybe. And, um, but he felt, hey, I'm, I, I, here's an opportunity. I get to preach the, the word here. I get to share the gospel in this moment. So he began to preach. And he started to talk about the love of God and the sacrifice of his son for the world. And at one point, this man in the front yelled out, Allahu Akbar. So as you can imagine, in a, um, if that happened here, maybe what the response would be. There, it was about half the church got up and ran out. But the man stayed in his chair, and the preacher, as he watched the, 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 the people, half the people leave, wondered, what am I supposed to do now? And he felt, I've got to keep going. So he kept preaching, he kept sharing the gospel. Jesus' love for all peoples, dying for the nations. And two or three more times as he shared, Allahu Akbar came from this man. And as he began to talk about how we can know God and how we can personally be in relationship with him, tears began to come down his face into his beard. And eventually the story goes, I didn't know what else to say. That's Allahu Akbar. That's what you say to say, God is great. He was saying, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. And this man is one of thousands whom God is calling even now in what is the greatest displacement of people since World War II. Men and women meeting Jesus in places that they never planned on going because they were forced out. And um, my Bible says in Acts that God determines the, the boundaries of the peoples. Right? The, the borders and boundaries and where they are. And it says so that they might reach out for him and find him. He, yeah, he's moving people. God is moving people. 
is doing it so that they might find him. And they are. They are finding him. So I want to, that's one story. Good news. God doesn't answer to ISIS or to Boko Haram or to any government. He's king. Well, and that's what we're talking about today, right? This uh, Palm Sunday, it's all about the king. The king has come. King Jesus has arrived. But I, I want, before we get to, get to that, I, I want us to get confused first. Because I want you to feel what the crowds felt in that moment. Okay? I want you to put yourself into first century Jerusalem. And yes, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of, uh, of hubbub. People were, were shouting and they were cutting branches. But I believe that at the heart of it all was actually confusion. You can see that in that last verse there in Matthew 21. Actually, in, start in, in verse 10. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? Now, at the time, you had options as a good Jew of who you thought this might be, or, or maybe a better way to put that, how God was going to bring his kingdom. So maybe you've heard of the zealots. One of the, one of the, um, the disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. Maybe you read that. The zealots were essentially a political party, for lack of a better word, who thought that God's kingdom would come when we rebel and throw off the Roman yoke. So our modern day, maybe, you know, maybe you've heard of groups out in Wyoming or something like that. They're stockpiling arms. And I dare the government to take my gun away because, oh, the militia. We're going to bring in God's kingdom through violence. So that was, you, I'm sure there were zealots in the crowd watching, wondering, is, are we about to you know, gather an army here and, and, and go to war? Is this what Jesus is about to do? Another option could be uh, if you were a Pharisee. Right? How will God's kingdom come? Well, God's kingdom will come, according to the Pharisees, when his people begin to obey his law perfectly, in essence. And so maybe you were watching, and, and we know that the Pharisees interacted with Jesus quite a bit. Uh, most didn't like him, and so... I, I don't know that they were watching thinking Jesus is going to bring law-keeping to our people. He's going he's to fix our disobedience problem. So that's an option. The third would be, uh, th there's a group called the Essenes. Maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community. This, these people, that they believe the kingdom of God... In essence, the way to bring it is actually not to do anything, but to remove yourself from society. To kind of hunker down into your holy huddle, the frozen chosen, and just, let's just do our thing. We're, we're, let's live in caves. Right? And let's just wait. Wait till he comes. We just got to separate ourselves from those sinners, from the Gentiles, and all the ways that we could get corrupted and dirty. And there were other, there were other groups, and, and I just know that all of them were there watching. What's he going to do? 
Maybe not the Essenes. They were maybe in their cave. But otherwise, what's, what's Jesus going to do? They knew it was about kingdom. Right? That's what they were... They were fulfilling what the prophet said. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is about kingdom. But let's imagine for a minute you were the disciples. As the disciples, I would think that you're probably the most confused of all. Of all these groups. You're probably, probably the most confused. On the one hand, you're happy. You're like, dude, Philip, you see the crowds? We got some good numbers today. Right? We had not seen these numbers since we fed those 5,000 people. This is big. But at the same time, if you had a decent memory as a disciple, you would have remembered why you were heading to Jerusalem in the first place. Why did Jesus begin this trek to Jerusalem? Let's rewind for a minute. Let's um, come with me to Matthew 11. We're, gonna, we're just going to... Rewind back to Matthew 11 and move forward back to where back to where we are in Matthew 21. So this is uh, John the Baptist is is in prison, and I think John's confusion here is going to be a model for confusion for us and the disciples and eventually the people in Jerusalem. In verse two of chapter 11, it says. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the Christ? Are you the Savior? Are you the one that will bring the kingdom? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Are you the one that will bring the kingdom? Go and tell John what you see. That the things I'm doing are the things that the Old Testament says the Messiah will do. Right? I'm fulfilling the promises of God. Tell him to trust me. But why was he worried? Why was John worried? Well, personally he was worried. Because he was in jail, and he was soon to be beheaded. I would be worried. But he was also worried because he had read the whole Old Testament, and he knew that one day that Messiah who comes to establish a kingdom would defeat all of God's enemies. And so John was probably wondering, I'm about to be beheaded for all I know. When will the Messiah defeat the enemy who will behead me. Yeah, you're healing people. You're healing the blind. You're preaching good news. But what about, what about my head? We'll come back to John in a moment. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to see the, the confusion, I, I think, escalate. And it's fun to watch. Now, let me say, I, I don't blame the disciples. I would have done the same thing. But they're going to put their feet in their mouths again and again in just a, a, one of the most entertaining kind of set of events here. So feel free to laugh, but just know you would have done the same thing probably. All right. Um, this is chapter 16, starting in verse 21. Because Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem now, right? 
This is the Messiah. This is the one who will restore the kingdom. In fact, Peter earlier, just, just in, starting in verse 13, confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Savior. And what does Jesus say directly after this, starting in verse 21? From that time, just right after this confession, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. What? I just, I just declared you were the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who will bring the kingdom. I'm, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem to die. So here's Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You're the Messiah, the one who will bring the kingdom in, the Son of the living God. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Somewhere, at some level, this confusion over the kingdom, the difference is, are you thinking about the kingdom in God's terms or man's terms? There's the confusion. That's the root of the confusion. Are you thinking about this and what I need to do from God's view or from your own? And you see this continue again and again in chapter 17, starting in verse 22. Jesus again foretells his death. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So you hear this for a second time now. Jesus has said it twice. What do you do? What do you do? Well, of course, you argue over which of you will be greatest in the kingdom, right? Isn't that a natural response? Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Mark actually throws the disciples under the bus when he recounts this story. Because he, he, he says they're on their way to Capernaum. They get there. And Jesus turns to them and says, What were you arguing about on the road? on the way here. Well, we were, we were talking about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I just told you I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And the response is, which one of us will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's a root confusion over the things of God and the things of man. Right? It doesn't end there. It just gets better. It really does. In uh, the next, in chapter uh, 20, for a third time, Jesus tells of his death. As Jesus, this is cha uh, chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Sounds familiar, right? Third time you've heard it now. Well, 
I love this, the response this time. Because we get the first picture in the Bible of a helicopter parent. <laughs> right? What happens in the next verse? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these, I know you just said you're going to die. Um... But say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. This is like thickness of biblical proportions, right? But they know it's about the kingdom. There's, who will be greatest in the kingdom? Say that my sons can sit at your right and to, and to your left. But they were thinking about the kingdom, right? With the things of man in mind. And so we get to Palm Sunday. We get to the, this, this entry into Jerusalem. And that's your background. You're standing there as a disciple. And it's exciting. The crowds are big. They're, they're chanting. They're singing. They're, they're waving branches. But I think somewhere at the back of your mind, you've got to be thinking, Jesus said he's, he's actually here to die. Peter, you think he was serious? Why were they thinking that way? I, I have some slides, and uh, I've, I've been paying no attention to them. So here are all the verses. <laughs> and I just got caught up in it. It's, it's awesome. So here we are. Why are they confused? I think part of it is, yes, they had read, like John, they had read the Old Testament. They knew when the Messiah comes, he's going to restore all things. He's going to conquer his enemies. He's going to cast off the, um, the oppression. He's going to bring righteousness and justice and healing and life. And so they saw the, the, the world, they saw kind of their end times idea was this, that this present evil age that we live in, one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do away with everything. And in a blink of an eye, the age to come will start. On this great and terrible day of the Lord, he's going to come, judge, make things right. The end. Full stop. But that isn't what happened. That isn't what happened. And in fact, the Old Testament talked about this. It talked about this, this period of time. It, it, it was called the last days, the latter days. This period of time. Where, where God would work out all of his purposes. But increasingly, as the Old Testament goes along, it says it's going to start internally. It's going to start internally. Why has it got to start internally? Well, let me ask you. If there were any kingdom on planet Earth who ever had everything they needed to see the kingdom of God established on Earth... Wouldn't that have been Israel? The presence of God in their midst in the temple, right? The law of God showing them how to live. The king that God has appointed over his people ruling. If any, any people, any nation ever had a chance of seeing the kingdom of God established, 
through physical means, it would have been Israel. But they couldn't. They couldn't. They, because the real enemy, just, just as we heard this morning, it wasn't, it wasn't the nations. It wasn't Rome. It was sin and Satan. And until I defeat them, until I defeat those enemies, you've got no hope. My people have no hope until I defeat them. I could snap my fingers. I could put them back in the promised land. I could rebuild the temple like that. I could put my presence back in the temple, and they would still be sinners. And still be sinners. Instead, I've got to come. I've got to come, and I've got to do something about Satan, sin, and death. And I've actually got to give a period of time for people to hear about that, right? To hear and believe and to turn to me. I've got to give them time these last days for the message of what I've done to go forth. And then, and then I can come and make all these these outward things, right? All these physical things, right? Oppression, no more tears wiped away. Broken bodies healed. Broken souls mended. But I can't do that yet. I can't do that the first coming. Why? Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because if I set up my kingdom now, you couldn't be in it. John, you couldn't be in it. James, Matthew, you couldn't be in it. I've got to kill death and sin first. It has to be this way. It has to be this way. Who could live in his kingdom if he didn't die for sin? If he didn't defeat death? He's got to defeat the real enemies of the kingdom. Let's open... Um, Actually, stay where you are, and I'll just read it for us. This is just um, the writer to the Hebrews captures this, captures this beautifully in Hebrews 9, verse 26. As it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So this is first coming. He came to put away sin. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, he did that the first time, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. You see that? First coming, deal with sin. Second coming, to save those who will eagerly wait for him. How will they wait for him? How will they... How do these people even know? Well, we've got a period of time. We've got this period of time where people can find out, where people can hear of what Christ has done. So I'm going to, let's turn back to Matthew. Or you're already there. I'll turn back. Verse, uh, chapter 24. I'm just going to read a few verses that, that capture this idea e even more clearly. Verse, chapter 24, verse 14. 
Because we're talking about when will the kingdom be fully established? Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross. But when will he come again? This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We've got this period of time. And the gospel's got to get to all nations. It's got to get to all nations. And then the end will come. I've created this space that the gospel would go forth. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. If you want to turn there, you can, or I'll just read it for us. Verse 25 says it this way. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the fullness of the nations has come in. There's been a partial hardening. I've hit pause on some things because we've got to get the gospel where it's not. Peter in 2 Peter 3 says it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of coming as some count slowness. This is starting in verse 9. He's not slow in coming. He's not slow in, in bringing the kingdom. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's a period of time. God is waiting. He's patient. He's patient, wanting all to reach repentance. I showed you uh, this map last time I was here. don't know if you remember it. This is the country of Nigeria. I'll remind you, about 60 years ago, we drew these borders, these, these boundaries. This is what we call the nation of Nigeria, but in, in the New Testament, the word nation means ethnicity, culture, people groups. And so this is the country of Nigeria, but here are the peoples, the nations of Nigeria and Cameroon and the surrounding countries. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. This is why it's no surprise that when Jesus does rise from the dead, if, if, if this is true, that we, there's this, this period of time where the gospel can go forth, if that's true, then it shouldn't surprise us that the end of Matthew... Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. I've bought them, now go get them. I've purchased them with my blood. Now go get them. This is one of the reasons, this is the main reason I work with an organization called Pioneers. We, we send church planting teams to unreached people groups. That means these nations that have no access to the gospel. Many of them have no scripture in their language. No church. Many of them have no Christians. About 3,000 of them don't even have someone there on the ground trying to reach them. They're unreached. And the North Shore, New England, is an under-gospeled part of the country. I believe that. I believe that if that this is a strategic place to be a Christian, to, 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 to be the church, 
But could you imagine if all of New England had no believers? Not a single gospel worker there. That's what we mean by unreached. And you um, you graciously supported our ministry for years. And we've, we're, we're, we now have about 3,000 workers in uh, over 100 countries with, working with over 200 unreached people groups. Well, so what's this all have to do with Palm Sunday? Let's bring it back. A couple of you are like, yeah, that's a good question. Um, what does it have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, first, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to go there to die, right? That's his plan. I'm going there to die because I've got to defeat Satan, sin, and death. I've got to make it possible for the peoples, the nations of the world, including my own disciples, to be in my presence, in my kingdom forever. Palm Sunday is just a lead up to the cross where he poured out his blood for us, for all the nations. But I also want to look at, if you'll flip with me to Revelation 7. You know, the word for palm in the, the New Testament, like palm tree, only happens, only appears twice in the New Testament, both of them written by John. In John's gospel, when he talks about the um, Palm Sunday, he's the only one that says the leaves were palm leaves. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they just say leaves of branches and of trees. And John says these are, these are palm, palms that are being waved put on the road. And I think he had that in mind in Revelation chapter 7. In verse 9, he's looking into the throne room. says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count, no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, Palm Sunday is a symbol. It's a picture of what one day in heaven will happen, but it won't happen on the streets of Jerusalem. And it won't just be a bunch of Jews standing around. It will be before the very throne of the Lamb with all nations, all peoples worshiping Him. I believe Jesus rode in knowing that, thinking about that, and how, how actually this is kind of piddly, what's happening here in the streets of Jerusalem compared to what will happen. And for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross because He knew what He was purchasing. Palm Sunday is a picture of an eventual, eternal celebration of the King that will take place in heaven where all the nations will be around His throne. And so then, what do we do 
what do we do? I think first, Palm Sunday for us as believers, it uh, not only tells us how Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death. He had to go. He had to die. Um, it not only shows us who he died for, he died for all the nations, but I think he, he illustrates for us the expectation of believers. Right? First, what did he pour out his blood for? He poured out his blood so that men and women from all nations would know him. And that should shape us somehow. Whether we're in Peabody or Indonesia, whether we're in the marketplace or the mission field, his global desire, his desire to see all nations reached should mark us. It should mark us. We should care. When we, when we hear from CNN or, or Fox News or whatever you listen to, what's happening in these places, we should pray. And the second thing it teaches us is how, not, not only what he purchased, what was so important to Jesus that he would lay down his life, but how we now follow him in that. Friends, if you would be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't want us standing on the side as he's moving through the streets of Jerusalem. He wants us with our crosses following behind him in his trail to accomplish what he went to accomplish. So what has to die in my life, in your life, to make what he died for your passion? What has to die? Is it my retirement plans? Is it my idolatry over my kids? Is it my time, money, relationships? We are to take up our crosses, not for the sake of having a cross on our back, but for the sake of going where Jesus is going and doing what Jesus is doing. This should be conversation around here. How are we seeing our lives changed, creating margin in our life to reach people? What are we doing to see that happen? I read earlier this week that if you wonder if you're following Jesus, well, Jesus will always lead you to lost people because that's where he's going. Friends, Palm Sunday is an invitation to join Jesus on his mission. And it means his death and our death. That's hard. But I ask you, what, is, what, what would be the consequence of living for something else? We often talk about the cost of following Jesus, but what's the cost of not following Jesus? I think that's a lot worse. And so my prayer as we wrap up is that like Jesus, you would see your life as a seed 
Jesus in John 12, 24 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's serve Jesus. Let's join him in the train. Not waving branches as he walks along, but move behind him. Going where he's going, reaching where he's reaching. And if I could just say one final word to you. If you want to explore what living a missional life looks like. Kayla mentioned earlier the Perspectives course. It's a 15-week course. It's a commitment of time, and it costs money to take. But I don't know of any other resource, any other class that helps you understand, again, whether you're in Timbuktu or Tulsa, Oklahoma, what it looks like to join Jesus in this mission. You're going to hear more about perspectives as as the the weeks go but I really encourage you um, that would be one perhaps the best resource to help you get your life aligned to the train of uh, as Jesus is moving through Palm Sunday let me pray for us father thank you thank you that that Jesus set his face like flint to Jerusalem he did not turn back he did not turn aside He did it to save us, to rescue us to the glory of God. And Lord, we know, we know that we are now invited, not just to be sons and daughters, Lord, we're so grateful for that, but also to be kingdom workers, to be agents of reconciliation to the world. And Lord, we know that Palm Sunday invites us again into both those realities, sons and daughters and agents and ambassadors of reconciliation. Lord, we, we pray that whatever it takes, whatever you have to do in our lives, that they would be aligned with that. Lord, we're scared to take up our cross and follow Jesus, but we know the cost of not doing that is so much higher than the joy of following you. So thank you for your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.